I'm Dan McCannon. I have the honor of serving as the Emerson Senior Lecturer here at the Divinity School, and this year I have the added bonus of serving as Acting Associate Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs during Janet Giazzo's sabbatical. In the past two days, you've heard many of us say that almost a quarter of our students will pursue careers in professional ministry, almost a quarter in academia, leaving more than half to bring a scholarly and ministerial understanding of religion into professions other than ministry and academia. This afternoon's special guest is not an alum of the Divinity School, but he does exemplify the qualities we seek to instill in that more than half of our students. E.J. Dion's illustrious journalistic career has been shaped both by his personal faith and his subtle understanding of the interplay of religion and politics. In his writing for the Washington Post and for Commonweal, his frequent appearances on NPR, MSNBC, and PBS, E.J. has steered his audiences away from simplistic models of where religion does and doesn't count in politics, illumining the deep religious dimensions of politics left, right, and center. He's also served as government professor at Georgetown University, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, and the author of six books. If you didn't have a chance to pick up his most recent, Why the Right Went Wrong, Conservatism from Goldwater to the Tea Party and Beyond, there will still be copies available on the way out as a small token of our thanks for your support. I'm also pleased that joining EJ in conversation will be my colleague on the HDS faculty, Catherine Breckis, the Charles Warren Professor of the History of Religion in America. Catherine, who's one of my, the many colleagues I have who was also my teacher, uh, is a leading scholar of women and religion in the United States and one of the few historians courageous enough to honor the diversity of religious experiences and still seek to craft narratives that are synthetic and campacious enough to hold that diversity together. Catherine came to our faculty two years ago from the University of Chicago. In that short time, she has revitalized our community of American religious historians, graciously taken on countless tasks, among them the interim directorship of our Women's Studies and Religion program during Ann Browdy's sabbatical, and won our Outstanding Teacher of the Year Award during her first year on, this, on the faculty. The topic of EJ and Catherine's conversation is are Pope Francis and Donald Trump changing the role of religion in American politics? Since Pope Francis was on the radio this morning, uh, this is certainly a timely and provocative topic, and also a prescient one. I was told that EJ shared the title of this uh, talk with our event staff the day before Francis and Donald clashed publicly about religion last month. E.J. will start the conversation with his prepared remarks, and Catherine will join in a bit later. So please join me in welcoming E.J. Dion to the podium. Uh, thank you so much. I, I will explain to you why it's a particular joy to be here today, but I just learned that Catherine uh, was, got her undergraduate degree from Harvard and then her PhD from Yale. And I told her about what John F. Kennedy said when he received an honorary degree from Yale. He said, now I have the best of both worlds, a Harvard education and a Yale degree. <laughs> uh, and so, but I'm really honored. 
I am really honored that she is my um, interlocutor. I also um, want to say I am very sorry that I missed uh, Angie and Casper. Now, is that a cool name for a pair? It sounds like a folk group, I think, and, which is why they will be very famous in addition to their good work on the nuns. Uh, and I, we could talk a bit about the nuns because I actually think uh, their role is quite important uh, in this election. And parenthetically, um, they sort of suggest a real coalition management problem the Democrats have that's quite different uh, than the Republicans. The Democrats include um, the most uh, religious people in America. Uh, who are, by most measures, African-Americans, uh, and the least religious people in America, indeed, the people most hostile to, religious, to religion in America. And the Democrats have to hold this whole thing uh, together so that if you think the Democrats sometimes look incoherent on this question, uh, that's why. Uh, and uh, it's a real struggle. But the other thing I have to say is I truly love this place. I never got an HDS degree, but um, the first year... Uh, that Harvard allowed undergraduates to come up to Harvard Divinity School. My friend Ron Garrett and I, as far as we can tell, Ron now teaches at uh, USC. Some of you may know uh, his work. Um, were, as far as we can tell, the first people to walk over here and uh, uh, enroll in a class. And it was Harvey Cox's, it's the, the, my favorite class on my transcript. Um, it was his class called Eschatology and Politics. Uh, which is continually relevant uh, uh, to uh, life. And I've always told, uh, stu students often ask you, I'm, I teach at Georgetown, uh, and students often ask you, well, what are professionally useful courses? And I always tell my students that eschatology and politics was the most professionally useful course I took because less than 15 years later, or, uh, I found myself covering the Vatican for the New York Times when uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger was condemning uh, liberation theologians like uh, uh, such as uh, Gustavo Gutierrez uh, and Leonardo Boff. And Harvey was having us read these guys in mimeograph, for those of you old enough to remember uh, mimeograph, you know, these things that came in from groups in Latin America called Cristianos por Socialismo and stuff like that. And it was so that when this came up in the Vatican, I knew all about these guys. And that was because of eschatology uh, and politics. And I also have always found this place one of the most congenial uh, places to study. And there are so many great people who've gone through here, including my old friend, uh, Father Brian Hare, uh, who is uh, just one of the most extraordinary people I know. So it is uh, uh, such a delight uh, and privilege to be here. And God bless the Harvard Divinity School for buying that big pile of books. I still have. Um, my, um, my wife and I still have five years of college tuitions to pay, so every little bit uh, helps uh, enormously. Um, this uh, campaign is uh, uh, quite uh, extraordinary, and um, I was at an event last night um, uh, for the 10th anniversary of the Berkeley Center uh, at uh, Georgetown, and Madeleine Albright gave an extraordinary talk in honor of the Berkeley Center's 10th anniversary, and she told a story which many of you may know, but I had never heard before, where she was at a session where Ellie Wiesel uh, asked everyone, who is the saddest person in the Bible? Uh, and various people, you know, many said Job, for obvious reasons. Some said Moses, uh, because uh, he never got to see 
the promised land. Um, uh, some said uh, the Virgin Mary because she had to watch her son be crucified. Uh, but Elie Wiesel said the saddest person in the Bible is God uh, because he had to watch all of this human folly. Uh, and I'm going to carry that around with me for the rest of this election campaign because it is hard <laughs> to imagine that God is terribly pleased with a lot of what's uh, going on here, even though I try never ever to claim I can speak for, uh, for God. But on the Donald Trump Pope, uh, it is true, I, can't, I had this idea before, uh, um, you know, the fight between Trump and Pope Francis uh, for reasons I'll get to, but um, I, my favorite uh, output, outcome of that fight was uh, courtesy of my Washington Post colleague, Carlos Lozada, uh, who's the, book, the chief book critic, a wonderful writer. And Carlos was trying to imagine if sort of Donald Trump is going to go after the Pope, who does he go to next? And so he wrote a tweet that was basically his idea of what the next Trump tweet was. And the, treat, the tweet went as follows. It took him three days to rise. I could have done it in three hours. <laughs> Jesus, very weak. Uh, uh, and so that's where we are. Uh, uh, I've been collecting Trump jokes, so I'll just share another that has nothing to do with Divinity School, but. Uh, a, one of the late night comedians uh, cited a recent poll that showed that uh, the election of Donald Trump would make 70% of Americans anxious and 30% of Americans Canadian. Um, uh, the, um, uh, it is, uh, and, and I just I want to honor your great dean. It's a real, he's a wonderful man. We are really blessed that he has joined this uh, community uh, of ours. I was actually at a table last night, I told people of rather sort of, um, how do I say it, judgmental academics who were talking about what a great place Harvard Divinity School is becoming and has become. So that I thought that was a tribute to all of you here, including especially uh, your dean. Um, uh, I was very, uh, uh, I, my slogan in life uh, is uh, God looks out for fools and Democrats, and I qualify uh, on both of those. And so imagine my surprise when I knew I was giving this talk, and two things, not one, but two things um, came, uh, were announced this morning. One is that Bernie Sanders uh, is going to the Vatican to speak at the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences uh, next week. Now try to imagine um, a Democratic presidential candidate over the last 20 or 30 years being invited to the Vatican uh, in the middle of a campaign and um, makes it even better. It's a Jewish socialist uh, Democratic <laughs> presidential candidate uh, being invited to the Vatican. A friend of mine who occasionally criticized Pope Francis said, this proves he's a Peronist, my uh, <laughs> friend said. But um, the, uh, she's a Hillary person. Um, but uh, this is an extraordinary uh, and quite uh, wonderful thing. Uh, and at the same time, the Pope today uh, released what really is a groundbreaking document called The Joy of Love. And while the Pope did not change the church's formal teachings on uh, uh, gay marriage and other issues, it clearly is a move toward, I think, what can only be called a more liberal, uh, some might even say modernist uh, view of sexuality. It's a really remarkable document that lays heavy emphasis on personal conscience um, and is very welcoming of everyone um, into uh, the church. 
Um, and I think the, this is one of many signals um, that Pope Francis has sent um, about his uh, desire um, to remove the church or at least minimize uh, the church's role in cultural warfare uh, and to, I would say, re-emphasize, uh, not simply emphasize, but re-emphasize church teaching on poverty, economic injustice, immigration, uh, and the plight of refugees. Uh, in fact, Sanders this morning noted that Pope Francis is to his left uh, on uh, many uh, economic uh, questions. Um, and I think this shift um, within the Catholic Church um, is not really surprising. It is actually where the church was a long time ago and not that long ago. Um, some of you may remember, and Brian Hare was involved in this, uh, when the Catholic bishops issued two pastoral letters in the 1980s, one on economic justice that was very critical of the workings of the capitalist system along the lines that Pope Francis would uh, recognize, and another on nuclear war and the need for war always to be a last um, resort and setting up very strict criteria uh, for uh, warfare. So again, I think it's important to recognize Pope Francis isn't inventing something altogether new. He is actually restoring um, an emphasis that has been there in Catholic social teaching. And I think one of the um, interesting questions in this campaign, and this is what I'm trying to set up rather than resolve a conversation, um, is what will Pope Francis's impact be uh, as this campaign goes forward. It's very striking uh, that the two candidates who like to quote Pope Francis the most are the two Democratic candidates. Uh, you don't find Republican candidates in this campaign quoting uh, Pope Francis uh, very much. This would not have been the case a few years ago. Um, to what extent do uh, Pope Francis's um, early um, uh, appointments um, you know, the, uh, art, the new bishop of, um, of uh, San Diego, who got a PhD in uh, political science from Harvard, by the way, or Cardinal uh, Archbishop Supich uh, in Chicago, who are very much out of the progressive uh, tradition uh, in the church. Um, how much will the Catholic hierarchy, which is still quite conservative, um, how much will this change? And so I think on the Pope Francis side, you have uh, a re-emphasis of Catholicism's, but also Christianity's, uh, the broader Christianity's emphasis on social justice. You have an internationalization of the uh, Christian uh, vision, uh, and, um, and especially with his emphasis on refugees, on immigrants, um, and on global poverty. Um, and this is um, a, a radical change uh, from what we have been accustomed to over the last uh, several years. Um, that could shake up this campaign in interesting ways. And then on the Republican side, you have Trump shaking up uh, the religious conversation in the following way, that uh, really since the um, 1970s, late 1970s, early 1980s, we've had one notion of white evangelical Christian conservative politics in our head. I always say white because it's very important to remember that uh, the vast majority of African Americans, I think, are definitionally uh, evangelical Christians, uh, and they are not notoriously conservative in their views uh, on uh, social or economic justice issues. Indeed, uh, and we could talk about this a bit, I think one of the fascinating things is on many theological questions, African Americans find themselves quite close, if you look at the polling, uh, to the views of um, 
evangelical, white evangelical conservatives, and yet um, the preaching in uh, the churches is quite different. You hear a lot more Exodus in the African-American church. You hear a lot more Micah and Amos uh, and Isaiah in the African-American church. You can still hear um, Martin Luther King's invocations of Amos, let justice roll down like water and righteousness like the mighty stream. Um, in the um, uh, white evangelical churches, you do not have quite that same uh, prophetic emphasis. Um, but what Trump has done on the white uh, evangelical side is created a real split. There are um, evangelicals who have been very critical of uh, Trump. Um, Rich, uh, Russell Moore, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, was rather tough on the old Donald. Uh, in a piece he wrote for National Review a couple of months ago, he wrote, um, can conservatives really believe that if elected, Trump would care about protecting the families?" place in society when his own life is unapologetically what conservatives used to recognize as decadent. Um, intriguing uh, question. He also talked about how can we really be comfortable with a guy who's made a lot of money off gambling. Um, and then he added Trump's willingness to ban Muslims even temporarily from entering the country simply because of their religious affiliation would make Jefferson spin in his uh, grave. Um, and yet, despite these denunciations from many key, quite conservative um, evangelical leaders, uh, Trump in many, many primaries has done very well among evangelical voters. If you go back to the Southern inflected uh, primaries of uh, the first Super Tuesday, the media keep calling everything Super Tuesday uh, these days. They really should, they, they, we should at least have Batman Tuesday or something. Um, <laughs> Um, but he has picked up a serious share of the evangelical vote, uh, particularly in parts of the Deep South. Um, Alabama's just a couple of numbers. Al evangelicals made up 77% of Alabama's Republican primary electorate. Um, Trump carried the evangelicals 43 to 23% over Ted Cruz, and among non-evangelicals, he beat Cruz by 41 to 18%. Uh, the rest of those votes went to Rubio or Kasich. Um, note that Trump's percentage was the same in both. Um, in Wisconsin, where he lost, again, no big difference between evangelicals and non-evangelicals. 34% um, of evangelicals, 36% of non-evangelicals. Now, Ted Cruz's whole campaign has been based on uniting the elements of the, at the far right end of the Republican Party. He's done quite well at that, uh, all things being equal. That's why he still has survived. And, it's one of the arguments in my book about what has ha why the right has radicalized, uh, that, that the uh, outcomes in the Republican Party reflect the radicalization on the right. Um, but I think it's important to understand um, what might be happening with this split among evangelicals. Um, Elizabeth Bruning, a Brunig, a brilliant young woman who uh, has written recent, most recently for the New Republic, although we at the Washington Post just hired her. I'm very proud of that. But she, she wrote a wonderful piece where she talked about the old-fashioned model of reaching evangelicals no longer appears functional. And Robbie Jones of the Public Religion Research Institute, whom I've done a lot of polling work with, um, said that many evangelicals are now nostalgia voters. Uh, animated less by, as he put it, a checklist of culture war issues or, or an appeal to shared religious identity and moved instead by an anger and anxiety that grows from a sense that the dominant culture is moving away from their worldview. I think it's one way to cast the issue, and it oversimplifies it a bit, 
is that some evangelicals are still voting on what they perceive as religious and moral issues, uh, and others are voting in a much more tribal way, uh, kind of defending their group. And indeed, um, I think the backlash around race and immigration that motivates some of the, uh, you know, a significant part of the Trump vote actually reminds us of something which is many white evangelical Christians, particularly in the South, began moving to the right and to the Republicans long before um, uh, the rise of the religious right. They moved that way in response to civil rights uh, in the 1960s, and Trump um, is, kind, is uh, uh, reminding us of that. Um, now, work crews to win uh, the nomination, um, I think that traditional patterns of white evangelical voting might re reassert themselves, at least for one more uh, election. But I think this split between what I will oversimplify as the tribal versus the religious uh, is really instructive about something uh, that is uh, happening uh, in our politics. Um, and two other quick points I want to make. One is um, that it is my view that um, the way in which uh, Hillary Clinton um, is most likely to solve this authenticity problem that the press, but not just the press, uh, associates with her, um, is if she is uh, far more out front and embracing of her Methodist faith and uh, its social uh, demands. I believe from conversation and from conversation with a lot of others uh, that the old social Methodist in Hillary uh, is a deeply authentic uh, Hillary Clinton. It is uh, who she is uh, and um, that this would, would convey something that I think her campaign hasn't conveyed very much. When she quotes John Wesley out on the campaign trail, uh, she seems to light up, and I think voters notice uh, that, and I think that will be part of the campaign. So, um, ironically, uh, given what we think of politics as living on the right for such a long time, it hasn't always lived on the right in the United States, and we can talk about that, um, you have an election where the evangelical movement is split, um, where uh, the Democratic frontrunner may find salvation through public uh, engagement with religion, and you have a Jewish socialist heading off to the Vatican to make a case about climate change and social justice that is in fact quite congenial uh, to Pope Francis's worldview. Um, in, America, in the American politics right now, uh, religion is working in mysterious ways, and we can only hope that eventually God will work in mysterious but helpful ways, too. Thank you very much. <laughs> these thoughts. You should know that um, when I told my 14-year-old daughter that I was speaking on the topic, are Pope Francis and Donald Trump changing religion's role in American politics, she wanted to know if there was a subtitle, God versus Satan. <laughs> <laughs> so you can tell- You're raising the, your daughter very well. <laughs> I'm just making my at biases least in my clear. View. <laughs> uh, uh, what, what she's been hearing at the kitchen table. Um, uh, so, so this is really a fascinating moment um, politically uh, in terms of the influence of religion and politics. And I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about what I see as really two very opposite tendencies with Francis and Trump, pulling the electorate in different kinds of ways. Um, 
Trump seems to me to be almost a sort of caricature of American individualism. You know, he's the cowboy who's self-reliant. He comes in, he gets things done. He's the autonomous individual. Um, the Catholic Church, as you know, has had a long history of suspicion of that kind of individualism, and they've really been focused much more on the common good. And so it seems to me that right now we have sort of two models of human flourishing, one where Trump says the, the way to make the world better is to get rid of any sort of restrictions on individual freedom. And another coming from the Pope and from other social justice advocates suggesting that we do need some limitations on human freedom and individualism for, for human flourishing. Thank you, that's a wonderful question. I, I will resist the temptation to defend cowboys from being compared <laughs> uh, to Donald Trump. Um, the, They're all rolling uh, in their yeah, graves. Yeah, they, uh, um, a, a couple of things on that. One uh, hearty agreement and one perhaps a friendly amendment on the question, if I could. The, the hearty agreement is I do think um, that uh, Americans are, uh, and have been from the beginning of the Republic, deeply divided between our devotion to individualism and our deep affection for community. I, I wrote a book called Our Divided Political Heart that was about uh, this. And it isn't that we, are, we have just a communitarian camp and an individualistic camp. I think this division goes right down uh, the middle of so many of us who are American. You even see it in the Declaration of Independence uh, where um, you know, the beginning is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is sort of individual rights. Mm -hmm. And at the end, where the founders pledge their lives, their fortune, and their sacred honor, and they realize that these goals can only be achieved through uh, common action. Um, and I also love to um, remind people, I occasionally do this in talks because I like what the answer sounds like, is to ask people, what is the first word of the American Constitution? So let's do it. What is the first word? <laughs> we. Exactly. We don't say it enough in our uh, country right now. But it's, a, it's an extraordinary fact about our Constitution. We don't think of that at all. Um, you know, it's often used, we the people, is used as a slogan on behalf of whatever kind of politics you have, particularly by our friends in the Tea Party. But it's a we document, right, at the beginning. And those are collective goals in the preamble. I, I am, I'm very, a friend and I, have wanted to write someday, maybe we will, a book about the preamble, which is my favorite part of the Constitution because it describes the purposes of the whole uh, thing. Um, so I think that split is deep in us. And Paul Begala, who some of you know from CNN, who worked for President Clinton, um, he once said a wonderful thing about two streams of rhetoric that always worked in Texas politics. Uh, stream one is we came down here on our own, it was a wild land, it was a mess. In some cases they might say we fought off the Indians, in some cases they might not say <laughs> that. Uh, and you know, we sort of built this by ourselves and we are self-reliant uh, and other people should be too, and that works. But then he points out the other speech that works is we came down here in wagon trains, we stuck together, uh, we protected each other, we showed up in a community. The first thing we build, did was build a church, and the second thing we did, we did, was build a school. <laughs> uh, and you know, we made it together because we stuck together uh, and stood up for each other. Those are two very American mm -hmm. frames. And so I, I agree with that. I think what's peculiar about Trump um, is that he, in many ways, has brought to our shores 
a kind of, uh, if I may, right-wing European nationalist mm -hmm. politics. There's a we in Trump, um, but it's a much more restricted we. Uh, it's, you know, it's the we of economic nationalism, um, you know, which is, by the way, is easy to understand. I, I, I think, you know, there, there, Donald Trump once said in his speech, after because of the way where he gets votes from, I love the poorly educated, uh -huh. uh, you know, which is a wonderful line of living <laughs> history. But I, I think, um, you know, uh, the, the people voting for Trump actually uh, demand attention, uh, that, that people shouldn't be quick to uh, criticize them for being poorly educated. I think people should remember uh, that those with less formal education in our society have been crushed mm -hmm. economically, particularly two kinds of people who are always against each other in politics whom we have to bring together. Um, uh, older white working class people, particularly men on the one side, and African Americans in the inner city on the other. William J. Wilson, a great scholar here, wrote a book called When Work Disappears about the cost of deindustrialization uh, in the inner city. So I hope if nothing good comes out of the Trump campaign, at least we pay attention to that. Nonetheless, his explanations are nationalist, mm -hmm. they're exclusionary, uh, and so there is a restricted we in Trump, and that is obviously uh, one of the things that bothers those who, in a broad sense, are liberal, uh, even if they are liberal communitarians. Uh, that's how I sort of think of myself as a communitarian liberal in my politics or a social democrat uh, who are basically communitarian liberals. Um, but that offends part of us and rightly so. Right, no, that's fascinating um, because there, there is a we, but it's a racially inflected we and I think it's also a class sometimes inflected we. Um, uh, whereas I think Pope Francis is trying to create a, um, uh, an, an image of, flourish, uh, of human flourishing in which we, we have a sort of special option for the poor, um, which it's hard to imagine Trump uh, accepting any of that language about preferential option for the poor. Yeah, I was trying to think what would Pope Francis's slogan be in this campaign if he were running for president? <laughs> um, and one of the slogans that came to mind was stronger together, uh, which I think is at the heart of Pope Francis's, uh, Pope Francis's view, which is on the one hand, he can be very critical of rich people, rich countries, our lack of generosity, um, you know, which is probably why he'd do very badly in an American election. Um, he wouldn't get much super PAC money. Um, <laughs> although actually, that, that, never mind. I mean, that raises a fascinating <laughs> issue about support for the church uh, financially. But um, the, um, uh, you know, but, but it, there is in his, uh, talking, and you heard this especially in his speeches in the United States, yeah. um, it's that all of us are better off if all of us are better off, mm -hmm. uh, and that we are all implicated in each other. Uh, and that is a very different, uh, different kind of uh, argument. Um, yeah. No, I think, you know, I was, when I was reading the um, Laudato Si document, I finally used my um, computer to count how many times he used the word common good. Yeah. And it was more than 30 times. Um, and this, this was also true, I think, in his address to Congress, where this was really an emphasis that he was trying to convey. So maybe his hat would say the common good. Uh, it would be make, make America great again versus you know, the, the common good for everybody. Um, By the uh, way, Trump critics have put out different baseball hats that say America is already great, which yeah. is a, uh, you know, and, and I, I, by the way, I think it's odd that progressives in some ways 
uh, can sound more patriotic these days than conservatives because conservatives are very easy with the America that is becoming. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, at least, I mean, these Republican debates, which, uh, you know, I have to watch for a living, um, and with, you know, which at times I honestly enjoyed, and occasion, there were occasional moments. I do salute Jeb Bush at the end for really going after Islamophobia, by the way. I think mm -hmm. he, he sort of won himself a certain respect at the end of that campaign. Um, but um, the, there, there is such a pessimism about uh, the United States that our values are, we're going to hell in a handbasket in terms of our values. We're becoming a much more diverse country that some people are uh, not accustomed to. So I've been saying that what conservatives really need, and I talk about this in the book, although I don't put it this way, uh, is they need to discover what um, Sarah Palin once called the hopey changey thing. <laughs> um, you know, because I do think that conservatism uh, at its most successful has had a strong element of hope in it. And the funny thing about Trump is he has a little bit of that in him. Oh, he does. Make America Great Again assumes that that's possible. Right. Um, but it, it entails a lot of other things. But I think more generally, um, you know, conservatives need to be more comfortable with the America that's becoming. Some are, uh, but a lot aren't. Yeah. So it's, it's very odd with Trump when you try to figure out his religious background, which is somewhat murky. Um, uh, but I mean, what, what he points to himself is Norman Vincent Peale that um, he went to Norman Vincent Peale's church as a child. He was married for the first time in uh, uh, Peale's church. Um, and Peale was all about positive thinking. He wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. It was published in 1952. Um, and in some ways, you can hear Peale's influence, I think, in Trump, where you know Peale was all about you, you have to think positive and never, never, ever accept defeat. That also sounds <laughs> familiar. I'm a Red um, Sox fan. I believe that, too. <laughs> uh, uh, but, um, but at the same time, deep, uh, he, he does sound deeply pessimistic sometimes about America and what the future might look like. Um, but this, this raises the question, going back to Peel, about why it is that Christian voters are um, willing to support him. Um, and my, my sense is, and I'm interested in your response to this, um, my sense is that some of this has been overblown and I'm really looking forward to sort of, you know, continued polling and um, because some of the polling has suggested that um, uh, the people who go to church once a week actually are pretty negative about Trump and that includes evangelicals. There are a lot of uh, people who self identify as evangelicals who will say to pollsters, I'm an evangelical and I support Trump, but it's not clear to me always what that means. Um, it does suggest to me, what, it's fascinating that a lot of people want to identify themselves as evangelicals, but if you get down to the level of practice, what is it that you're actually doing? Church-going Christians, including evangelicals, seem somewhat suspicious of him. But the narrative, I think, in the larger culture, and this is partially because of Jerry Falwell Jr., um, who you know, very publicly endorsed Trump, um, uh, the narrative has been that evangelicals are among his main supporters. So I just, I'd like to hear you reflect on that. No, I think what you said is important and true. Um, you know, that as best we can tell so far, um, 
the uh, more church-going and religiously engaged evangelicals are less pro-Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's one reason why Ted Cruz did so well right. uh, in Iowa. Um, you know, I, 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 one of my favorite little journeys so far in the campaign was to this wonderful little town called Keosauqua, Iowa, which is a little town on the Missouri border. Uh, and uh, it, it was clearly the crowd gathered in this kind of storefront, um, about 100, 150 people, and at the end of uh, um, his speech, I think I'm remembering it exactly right, he looked at the crowd and said, awaken the body of Christ. This was in a political speech. Uh, and he got a real response from this crowd, which was heavily uh, uh, evangelical. And those kinds of evangelicals are much more uh, Cruz than Trump. I also think there's a clear class split uh, among evangelicals, as there is through the whole uh, Republican electorate, that those people with a lot of formal, you know, college, non-college, basically, and that college-educated evangelicals are less pro-Trump than non-college, but some of that also has to do with uh, economic class. So all those things are true. Um, but I also think that um, we have, in a way, overemphasize the role of moral issues in the evangelical, white evangelical vote over a period of 50 years. In other words, we, again, that's one of the reasons I mentioned it in my talk, is that we forget that a lot of these voters started voting uh, Republican with Barry Goldwater mm-hmm. uh, in 1964. If you look at the states that flipped sides, white voters in Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and Louisiana um, were voting with Goldwater because of his opposition, opposition to civil rights bills. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in just in fairness to Goldwater's memory, was, there was nothing racist about him. He supported local civil rights bills. He, was, you know, he did it on states' rights and property rights grounds. Nonetheless, that objectively allied him with the southern part of the you know, white southerners who opposed uh, civil rights. And those factors have been playing uh, you know, all the way through. Um, and again, I think it's... You know, whenever we talk about race, we gotta be very careful. It would be wrong to say that this is all about race, mm-hmm. but it's equally wrong to say that it has nothing to do uh, with race. You can't wash that history uh, away. And you know, I think in, when you see Trump is kind of exposing some of this, uh, I've forgotten who wrote it first, but that you know, many conservative politicians um, have used a dog whistle on these issues, and Trump uses a bullhorn. Uh, and that there may be something positive about putting all this stuff out on the table so we can talk about it as long as he doesn't become the enabler of um, you know, a kind of public racism that uh, you know, is very destructive. If I may tell one personal yeah, story, yeah. I was on the book tour for this book and I was in Louisville and this lovely woman uh, stood up in the room, um, it turned out she was Indian American, and she told the story about her son uh, a 10-year-old son, I think he was, 10 or 12, um, being asked by a kid in his class, are you Muslim? And he said, no, I'm Hindu. And then he got invited to a birthday party. And the woman said, I wonder, would he have been invited to that birthday party if he had answered, I'm a Muslim? And then she talked about, you know, are we enabling a kind of discourse all the way down mm-hmm. uh, that encourages people in this direction? And I, I think it's something uh, to think about. So the positive would be, let's expose this, but the negative would be, uh, let's not expose it in a way that makes it sort of uh, more common, that gives, makes people feel it's okay to do this to a 10-year-old kid. Right, um, uh, can, can we have the map up there? Does somebody have the slide? 
because um, I, oh. I did want to talk some more about race because um, it does seem to me as if um, uh, you know this is a, a campaign season not only because of the campaign but of, about you know their their issues going on with police brutality but race has really surfaced as a very disturbing component of um, this electoral cycle. Um, so this is a, a map that I often show to my students in Love my American religion classes. And it's just, I think, really fascinating. You can see American history in some ways written on this map. Um, yeah. uh, but um, what the map is showing you is the dominant religious group in every single county in the United States. It doesn't mean that everybody in those counties or just that one group. but but numerically they're the majority. And you can see the strength of the Southern Baptist Convention across the South, um, which is also historically that has been a, um, a strength of the Republican Party. The Southern Baptists, for those of you who want a little history lesson, um, are formed in 1845 when the Baptists split into Northern and Southern divisions over slavery. Um, so in some ways, you know, there's still the, um, I think, the legacy um, uh, that the Southern Baptists bring with them of the history of the Civil War, of arguments about the expansion of federal power that have often been associated with race. Um, so many of the, of the debates about um, how federal power should be used have had to do with, you know, first in the Civil War with slavery, then in Reconstruction, civil rights, desegregation. Um, so if I could just ask you to talk a little bit more about race in you know, our contemporary political moment and the way that it's associated with religion. Yeah, I love this map. And if you look at Massachusetts up there, as a Catholic kid from Fall River, I think the painting up in New England is every New England Yankee's worst nightmare back in about <laughs> uh, 1855 or 1860. Um, I, and I raise that, by the way, just to say um, we shouldn't be too down on ourselves at this current moment uh, because we have had struggles of this sort all the yeah. way uh, through our history. In many ways, I see um, attitudes toward Muslims as not unlike in every way attitudes toward Catholics mm -hmm. about 100 years ago, that those of us who are Catholic were seen as representing a foreign power. We were yeah. seen as representing authoritarian politics and all kinds of papal documents were cited uh, you know, to support this view. And in fact, we made a big, we, cha we Catholics changed a great deal on these questions after Vatican II. Um, so that map is, there are so many ways uh, in which that map is instructive. And that big Mormon piece, LDS piece, in the middle is fascinating. It's one of the reasons I think why um, Mormons have been very resistant to Trump because of their own, they have a sense of their own history uh, as an oppressed uh, group. They're politically very conservative, but they still feel that um, uh, very strongly. Um, the, you're, you're, you're right, obviously, about the history of the break between Southern and Northern Baptists. Harvey Cox was a Northern Baptist, by the way, my old, uh, old teacher. Um, in defense of the diversity of even white Southern Baptists, uh, Jimmy Carter was a Southern Baptist. Mm -hmm. There are the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Uh, you know, there are, the beautiful thing about the Baptists is that they are so decentralized and democratic um, that they sometimes look like a socialist sect splitting in uh, different pieces. I say that as a compliment, <laughs> not an insult, by the way. Um, you know, that, and so there, you know, even Southern Baptists are uh, quite complicated. Um, but uh, yes, if you look historically, that's true. But 
I think the other fascinating thing about many of those counties in the South is think about someone like William Jennings Bryan. Um, I think Bryan is one of the most fascinating figures in American history. If you've never read it, Mike, Mike Kazin's um, book, a biography of uh, Bryan, a godly hero, is really fascinating because on the one hand, we know he was a fundamentalist. We remember him from the Scopes trial and the movie, and people have had a kind of negative view of Bryan. And indeed, he was a Democrat in the days when Democrats had, were the party of segregation uh, in the South. And yet, it was also Bryan um, who brought the, probably this, more than anyone, moved the Democratic Party into the progressive camp, not necessarily on race, mm -hmm. but on so many other issues. He was an early advocate of women's suffrage, an advocate of the income tax, an opponent of uh, big corporations, a real advocate of federal power. Uh, and I think he wanted to nationalize the railroads, if I remember right. I mean, a real advocate of federal power uh, on behalf of social uh, justice. Um, and I think one of the things we've seen uh, and so many of those counties voted for Roosevelt. Uh, and some of it was still voting for the racist Southern Democratic Party. But for a lot of these voters, it was voting for Roosevelt of the WPA and the TVA and relief uh, during the Depression. Um, and uh, for those of you who've been, had the misfortune of reading me over the years, um, you know that I've been obsessed pretty much all my life with the ways in which progressives and liberals have alienated a lot of religious people. Uh, over uh, the years by um, not sort of being respectful or understanding of their uh, religious commitments. I think we would have lost a lot of those folks to progressive politics because of the fights about race, mm -hmm. which are real. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we aggravated uh, the problem with a, um, you know, almost a patronizing attitude uh, toward people of faith. And so we made it easy uh, yeah. for them to, to make this journey. And obviously, Brian, uh, you know, Brian himself was patronized, mm -hmm. uh, but it's worth remembering that H.L. Mencken, who gets all the good press, was actually quite reactionary. Oh, yeah. uh, and that Brian didn't like Darwin because he didn't like social Darwinism, which itself was a reactionary uh, idea. Mm -hmm. But it is a great map. <laughs> also, the Dutch Reform do really well, <laughs> if you notice, up in the, up in the, the north you can, there. You can learn a lot about migration um, patterns. So I, I want to open it up and make sure that all of you have time to ask questions. So, Sir. yes, in the back. Um, if we could wait to get a mic because we're recording, so. This is a, a bit of a segue, but you mentioned twice earlier about Bernie going to the Vatican as a Jew. And the New York Times has done several pieces about the fact that he's chosen not to sort of comment a lot about his Jewish background, even referring to his father, I guess, as a Polish immigrant, not a Polish Jewish immigrant. So my question has to do with what's your take on why Bernie is kind of sheltering or sort of stepping aside from that Jewish background to the point where you know groups of rabbis have criticized him and so forth, and how will that impact elections in Florida or New York, places like that? Well, I think there is a long and strong uh, secular, often socialist Jewish identity mm -hmm. uh, in the country. One of the most touching things that ever happened to me personally, my wife was sick and was in the hospital, and my friend Harold Meyerson, some of you may know from his writing, he's an editor at the American Prospect, wrote a column at the Washington Post for a long time, and I got this wonderful phone message when I got home from, my wife is fine, by the way, it all worked out. Mm -hmm. uh, and my. Um, I had this touching phone message from Harold 
uh, who said, uh, EJ, tell Mary to get better because it's really strange that this Jewish atheist is saying prayers for her. <laughs> uh, I've always loved Harold for that. Uh, but I think Harold in that phone call was actually speaking for a real tradition uh, within the American Jewish community. It's a split that goes back you know, to people, you know, particularly among Eastern European Jews, um, you know, going back to the 1880s, 1890s. And you know, the, you know, the, if you, you look, I can't read them, but you look at the old Jewish socialist press, there was a strong stream of secularism or atheism. And so I think Bernie represents that. I don't think there's ever been any denial in Bernie about who he is. Uh, and, but I think that's the stream uh, he represents. On the other hand, one of the cool things um, and you know, I, I, and I'm, my view is I, I admire Hillary Clinton and like her more than a lot of people seem to. I also <laughs> think Bernie has done a great service broadening the spect our sense of where the political spectrum lies. You know, I, whenever Barack Obama was called a socialist, I always used to say to people, I know socialists, and they're <laughs> insulted when Barack Obama <laughs> is called a socialist. You know, he's a good capitalist. So I think he's done useful work, but one of the coolest things Bernie did was to go to Liberty University uh, and give this, uh, gave a speech where he quoted Pope Francis a bunch, he quoted scripture a lot, and basically just said, you conservative Christians, you know, think a bit about this social justice stuff and how deeply embedded it is in, your, uh, in the scripture. Um, so I think that's who Bernie is, is and I think it's a very, uh, you know, he's part of a very substantial group of uh, American Jews. Yes. EJ, uh, do you think we're overreading some of the results of the primaries? With the exception of Wisconsin, the, it's been a pretty narrow slice. If I um, got the figures right, Trump won Nevada with 8% of the Republicans in Nevada. Uh, are we uh, are we extrapolating from this a lot of things that we shouldn't be? Uh, I guess I, to that I say amen. I mean, can you imagine the press overreading an election result? <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine it. No, I, I have actually written yeah. this piece a couple of times on your theme, which is if Trump is getting, uh, just to keep the numbers simple, if uh, Trump is not even getting 40% of the Republican vote, but if he's getting 40% of 40%, that's 16% of Americans. Um, a Harvard scholar whose name escapes me had a piece in the New York Times about a week ago, and she pointed out that in the primary so far, Donald Trump, if you add up all his votes, they amount so far to 6% of the whole American electorate. So yes, I emphatically agree that we are overreading Trump, and, and some of it is just the extraordinary media attention, I, the, which is, uh, I think, kind of outrageous. I was in our kitchen one day, and Trump's speech was on MSNBC, so I switched the channel. The same, uh, you know, I didn't want to watch that. Same speech live on CNN at the same time, and I turned to my wife, and I said, what is this, Trump state television? <laughs> um, you know, and um, <laughs> so, um, so, yes, I think there's a danger of overreading it. What I would say, on the other hand, is, um, representing, say, 37% of the Republican Party is still an important fact about the Republican Party, particularly in a field that was that split. So have we made Donald Trump far more important as a broader American phenomenon? I think absolutely. 
Um, is he nonetheless very quite significant as a factor in Republican politics and reflecting a point of view of sort of important pieces of our country, people we need to think about and pay attention to? I think the answer to that is yes, too. Yes. That sounds so fair and balanced, I might be on Fox <laughs> News. <laughs> <laughs> Things to aspire to. <laughs> no, I always say that I, I'm a Patriots fan and I love Deflategate because for the first time I could understand the joys of being a Fox News commentator. I didn't care what the facts were, I just knew which side I was on. Sir. <laughs> 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 Um, we know that uh, evangelical Christians, particularly white evangelical Christians, have been a large voting block for Republicans at every level. And we're seeing, primarily in the southern states, these religious liberty bills uh, pop up. These I use religious? Relig excuse me, religious liberty. And I use religious liberty yeah, 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 in, right. a, in quotations. In quotation marks. Uh, yes, in quotations, uh, largely against the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage. And so my question is, do you think that they will use these religious liberty bills uh, to turn out the evangelical vote against for Republicans? And secondly, what can those of us who understand religious liberty in the truest sense uh, counter-narrative to uh, the bills that are popping up in the southern states primarily against uh, same-sex marriage? You know, that's a very good question. By the way, your question reminded me of something I let slip that you asked that I think is also important about the Trump vote. There are people who are arguing with some evidence, and I think it'll be interesting uh, to look at it uh, further, um, that the kind of prosperity churches, mm -hmm. uh, people who go to prosperity or health and wealth churches, however you want to characterize them, uh, you mentioned Norman Vincent Peale, uh, that folks in those congregations who probably do think of themselves as evangelical but are quite different from other kinds of evangelical may be somewhat more inclined uh, to vote for Trump. I don't think we have enough data. We might not get enough data mm -hmm. to really answer that, but it has an intuitive uh, sense to it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, um, uh, on your point, um, you know, I think it's, the, the religious liberty question is, um, is very tricky in the following sense. Um, I think it's tricky politically, but I also think it's tricky substantively, which is that I think most of us who are liberal who support gay marriage uh, who really don't like the idea of a baker not baking a cake and a you know, florist not giving flowers for a same-sex union, that, that we're not comfortable with that. On the other side, I think those of us who are liberal in the broadest sense understand that at some, at some point um, there is a fear on the part of traditionalists um, that all of their institutions will be in jeopardy uh, if uh, a particular worldview is imposed uh, upon them, so that um, you know, will somebody at a traditionalist evangelical school find themselves in 10 or 20 years' time losing federal money because they are opposed to same-sex marriage? And so, I think we need, and this is not a good time for it. We're not. We're at each other's throats these days. Um, but I think we need some kind of dialogue, uh, a, a sort of respectful dialogue across these lines where, you know, I first of all would like to persuade conservative Christians of all kinds to support same-sex marriage because in my view the best argument for same-sex marriage is a conservative argument, which is if you believe in fidelity and commitment, why in the world would you want to deny it to uh, a section of uh, 
our brothers and sisters. So I think that we have to press the case in that sense. Um, and that, um, you know, I oppose these laws because I think there is something, uh, you know, once you enter the marketplace, um, you, we, how do you draw the line? Um, you know, what if it's an African-American gay couple? Uh, what kind of discrimination is going on there? Uh, and so I, I don't think people should, once they enter the marketplace, should discriminate. On the other hand, I kind of get the uh, unease of the traditionalists in those traditionalist institutions saying, there are legitimate conscience protections. I think they're way more circumscribed than these religious liberty bills uh, would suggest. Um, and you, know, you can't force a church to give its hall for the celebration of a gay union, even though some traditionalist churches have. I mean, I, I, I know some Catholic churches that have quietly done this. Um, and you want more of that. But I, I, I think that those of us who want to fight it on the level of the bakery and the florist and the like um, do need to have some understanding of the real sense of, uh, boy, has this changed on us fast on the part of um, traditionalist people. Now, I'm not gay, so it's easier for me to say that. And if you are gay or lesbian, uh, this, what I am saying, sounds probably suspiciously like what Martin Luther King once called the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Uh, and I get that. But I, I think that somehow, um, you know, we have made so much progress so quickly on this issue that I don't think it should shock us that there are people who are kind of feel displaced, morally displaced. And how can we sort of protect authentic religious liberty without effectively undoing the progress we made on gay marriage? I don't know. That may not be a satisfactory answer to you. I'm curious. What you make of my answer? Uh, can it, could you give him a? <laughs> I struggle with this because I, I have, in general, I, I do believe there are uh, all kinds of legitimate religious exemptions. You know, I'm a kind of fan of the Seventh Day Adventists because they have protected the religious rights of people who don't, you know, observe the same Sabbath, and they've really been quite pioneering about protecting religious liberty. And so I worry about that side. I worry about, you know. I think kids should be able to bring Bibles into public schools if they want, stuff like that. Uh, I don't think that's against the Constitution. Um, in fact, I think it's been litigated. But uh, So I do sort of favor some legitimate ground for religious liberty. You know, it gets problematic here because you're talking about discriminating against individual human beings. But go ahead. In short, I agree with you as an ordained American Baptist minister. Uh, <laughs> he said quickly. American and progressive Baptist. I agree with you. It is a very tricky subject, right? But at the, at the same time, fundamentally, most Christians, whether they be evangelical or not, tend to believe that same-sex marriage is wrong based off of, and some would say, misinterpretation of historical text. Right. right? So it's a fundamental belief. And I think the, the trick is addressing that fundamental belief of the literalistic interpretation of text, depending on whatever text and how one decides to interpret that. So, I mean, I agree with you in many respects, a conversation needs to be had, but it, you're still not addressing the issue that it's, it's fast, but it's, they fundamentally believe that. And that's the- Right, no, I, I, that's, that's right. In the election, um, you know, I'm not sure how many votes this is going to move. In other words, I think the votes it will move are already immovable, <laughs> if, you, if I may put it that way. The votes are already on a particular side of politics. I don't think you're going to have a lot of change because of, these, um, you know, because of these decisions. And it's a real fascinating split in the Republican coalition yeah. 
because you've got the business part of the coalition really stoutly opposed to the social traditionalist uh, part of the coalition. And they're splitting the Republican Party and in minutes. Yeah, they're splitting the Republican Party. I live in the Bay Area, so I don't have very many um, Republican friends, just because <laughs> it's a demographic <laughs> thing. But those I do have um, are truly horrified and speak a lot about how horrified they are about the possibility of either a Cruz or a Trump candidate for their party. And as the conventions draw closer and as the possibility of a contested convention, um, you know, still potentially might emerge, I, there's also the specter of a potentially a third candidate and then maybe even a schism in the Republican Party that endures beyond this election cycle into a future one. I'd want to know, I'd like to know what you think about that and also then if you think that will change the um, influence of religion in, in the sort of, in the political marketplace in the years to come. If, if are you asking the question what are the chances of a completely different candidate emerging at the Republican convention? Is that the question? No, I'm more, so, more so that if, if um, let's say, um, it's contested Trump has the largest number of delegates, but Trump, they end up going with Cruz instead, and then Trump tries to run as an independent third um, candidate. Um, could that potentially lead, or, or, or alternatively, um, they choose Cruz overwhelmingly, and then a moderate, the so-called moderate wing of the Republican Party decides to just formally distance itself and form, say, a new third party? Yeah, this is a, an interesting question. Pundits love this question because the answer involves pure speculation. <laughs> um, and, um, but, it's, but there are interesting issues uh, here. Um, you know, number one, uh, it's harder for someone after a convention to get on enough ballots to run uh, as a third party candidate. And it's possible for people to take existing ballot lines and the like. Um, and if Trump loses, I'm not sure he's going to go that route. I have the theory that if Trump loses, uh, well, it depends on how he loses. I, uh, so you know, I wrote Trump's political obituary on Monday. I just went out there and <laughs> yeah. said he's done, really. Uh, they, they, the Post brought a wonderful headline that used the word really twice uh, in it to <laughs> underscore what I was saying. Um, and the reason I believe that is because over a very short period of time, we got so much concentrated Trump foolishness that it really <laughs> penetrated uh, in a way that it might not have penetrated before. And you finally saw as clearly as you could possibly see that um, you know, women will not let Donald Trump be our president. Uh, that you know, Hillary's margin over Trump, uh, depending on the polls, is like 21 to 27 points. Uh, it's like a gender gap of the sort we've never seen before. Um, and so I've already declared Trump dead. The reason I think that is politically he dead. He gets resurrected a lot. Yeah, no, no. I, I, well, actually, what I argued, I quoted Yogi Berra, who explained that the Yankees lost the 1960 World Series because we made the wrong mistakes, which is one of my favorite lines. I, I believe Yogi is right. You can make right mistakes, um, but that the press was in danger you know, they wrote him off early, and then he proved his staying power, and now they're afraid to see his collapse because so they'll make the wrong mistake now. And I think the view that Trump was an utterly inappropriate candidate was right from the very beginning, and it just took some time for that, more time than people expected for that to become true. Um, my theory is a lot will depend on the California primary. We will have a really historic California primary 
as we have with Goldwater and Rockefeller in 1964, Humphrey and McGovern in 1972. I think if Trump is losing at the end, uh, if he loses California, especially if he loses California and New Jersey, um, New Jersey less likely it would seem, although there might be an anti-Chris Christie backlash by then. Um, uh, if he's losing at the end, then he lacks that mandate of the people argument in the same way that he would have it if he's winning at the end. Um, and I have a strong feeling that Cruz can carry California uh, because there is a very strong you know, right-wing conservative piece of the California uh, Republican Party. He has a lot of institutional support, Cruz does, from that part of the California party. Um, and um, so then I think there is a possibility that Trump may try to preserve his own self-image and public image by accepting the role of a kingmaker. Um, you know, that there, are two not, that there are two possibilities with Trump, and this is purest of speculation. One is he'll raise a ruckus, say it, tell his people don't vote Republican, et cetera, et cetera. That's certainly possible. You know, a, a pure, gracious losing option does not seem in the cards. <laughs> um, on the, but I think Trump is, um, you know, I think Trump could also get in his head that I could show I'm important by picking the nominee. Uh, and it might be somebody other than Cruz or Kasich. Uh, and that would be very interesting. But as I say, that's purely speculative on my part based on dime store psychology involving <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> well, I, we are out of time. I think we're going to end with the death of Trump's political campaign. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you, everybody. We have a, a brief break before the next session. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Well, what